I'm the Reverend Kat Benakis, and this is the Holy Holy Podcast, the show about the wisdom of faith traditions in leading a good life. Linda Emanuel has very high hopes for the dying process. So I think of the awareness of dying as being a gift that could prompt people to enter the kind of love fest that happens when you give birth to a child or get married or graduate or whatever. It's just an extraordinary opportunity when pretty much anyone who's ever loved you will come and tell you that. Her description makes approaching death sound like an episode of Here Is Your Life with Guy Smiley from Sesame Street. She feels this way even though she knows that death can be painful and scary. In saying that there's joy, I don't mean to say that there's no suffering. There's, there's always going to be a lot of suffering. So often we find people saying, um, you know, Doctor, I've never died before. How do you do this? And she would know. Dr. Emanuel has worked and published in the field of death and dying for decades, both as an internist and as a psychologist psychoanalyst. In palliative care, she's a really big deal. And after all this work and research around death and dying, she thinks that it can be a love moment. If not happy clappy, then peaceful. There's a study famous in the field of death and dying by a woman named Karen Steinhaus. She looked at a number of different variables to try to figure out what made for a good death. And it turns out that a single question answers most of that. And that question is, are you at peace? Are you at peace? A good death comes down to that one question. Today on the Holy Holy Podcast, the show about the wisdom of faith traditions in leading a good life, we're starting out with the end to examine what makes for a good death. And how is it that we can create the conditions to answer yes to the question, are you at peace at the end of life? We're going to begin with a very short anecdote of a good death so that I can show in a biased manner that joy and peace are possible at the end of life. Then we'll do a quick look at some standard advanced planning tools that can help create for a more peaceful end. For the bulk of the show, though, I'll be speaking with kind, wise Chicago religious leaders about what religion can offer in helping us get towards a peaceful end. What is built into religion that helps people acknowledge death? Yom Kippur, the holiest day of our year, is supposed to be a rehearsal for death. What does good living have to do with good dying? If you have lived a good life, taking care of people as a good neighbor, and you have been in connection with the God Almighty, you're looking forward to everlasting life. And what can religious leaders say in the face of death? And not always talking. Then we're really living into our potential in that room in the moment. Today, we are talking about good death. First, a story of a death that was peaceful and joyful, but not quiet. When my grandmother died a few years ago, I was living on the other side of the country. 
but most of the rest of my family was with her, including my dad. Relatives were kind of coming and going. Folks would go into the bedroom, they'd spend time with mom, then they'd come and sit in the kitchen table and chat and, you know, talk. And then a few people were congregating in the front room. And so, you know, an element of that, while my mom wasn't conscious, was probably very comforting because that's how she spent her life. We, you know, we lived in a, an apartment building where we had relatives on different floors and no one ever locked their doors. And so, you know, my grandmother was in and out, my aunts were in and out, uh, people were in different parts of the apartment talking. And uh, I mean, it, so that was kind of her life. So I, I suspect she found that very comforting. And then it's time for her to go. The uh, hospice caregiver said, this is a good time. And so we were all able to be with mom, surround her bed at that time, hold her hand and uh, say prayers and uh, just love on her and, and be with her during her final, final time. You never know what's going to come back to you in those moments. So I said the Lord's Prayer and I said it in English and then I said it in Greek. Interestingly enough, it actually came back to me. I didn't, I didn't remember that much, uh, but I did kind of remember the Greek first, so I did that as well and made the sign of the cross on her forehead um, and uh, just then did some normal prayers, uh, just asking God to care for her and take her spirit. And um, So I, I probably rambled a bunch, but it was just what was coming to me at the time. To just love on her. I want that. For myself and everyone I care about. How do we get there? That brings us to part two. Some basic tools for end-of-life planning. These are things that are commonly accepted as helping create for peaceful ends from the medical and legal perspective. One tool is an advanced directive. That's a form or worksheet that's basically the endpoint of conversations that you have with your loved ones around three things. How invasive of treatment you want, the level of disability you're willing to live with after treatment, and the prognosis. How long you're prepared to live like that and for what reason. The other biggie is a medical durable power of attorney. That's the form that allows someone else to make medical decisions for you if you're not able to make them for yourself. Advanced directives and durable powers of attorney can help death be more peaceful, not because of the forms themselves necessarily, but because of the conversations that ideally happen in order to fill them out. Those conversations with your loved ones create the opportunity for what Dr. Emanuel calls existential maturity. It's very hard to talk about, well, what would you want if you're dying without having all the other relationship implications of mortality come in. To have the conversations and fill out the worksheets, you have to acknowledge one another's mortality. And the outcomes of those conversations take some of the mystery and fear out of what to do when... The doctor at the hospital... Uh, met with us and said, there's really no more that we can do at this point. 
these forms are important. But even with them, and even in our highly technical and sanitized society, death is still hard. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes the messiness of death is where religion and religious leaders can help orient us towards peace. And that's where I want to go next. This is the Holy Holy Podcast, and today we're talking about good death and what can help create conditions for peace at the end. So far, we've touched on some of the end-of-life planning forms. Their utility rests as much in the conversations that go into filling out the forms as the forms themselves. If you go to our website, holyholypodcast.com, you can find resources on advanced directives, durable powers of attorney, and many other things. You can also listen to an advanced directive conversation between veteran news anchor Tom Brokaw and his daughter Jennifer, who puts the tough questions to him. Now I want to look at what our faith traditions can offer in preparing for and going through death. I'm lucky enough to be joined by some pretty great Chicago religious leaders. Reverend Julian DeChazier, pastor at University Church, which is on the south side of Chicago. Rabbi Andrea London, Rabbi of Bethlehem at the Free Synagogue in Evanston. Imam Malik Mujahid, uh, I give sermons in downtown Islamic Center. One of the things that Dr. Emanuel talked about was this sense of existential maturity that happens for some people at the end of life or during life, which may or may not happen for people who grow up or live in religious traditions and communities. So what is it that in our traditions might give those opportunities to move towards something like spiritual or existential maturity? I think that all of our traditions have ways in which we can grow spiritually. Um, Some of them have to do with the rituals and others more with the development of faith through scripture. But you have to take advantage of those. And I think that we die often the way in which we have lived. And so if we've developed our faith during our life, then there is a much greater possibility at death that that faith can be a source of strength and of comfort for us. The analogy I give to a lot of people is like working out. You can't work out once a year or the day before you die and expect to be physically in shape. It's something that you have to be committed to in your life. And those people you know, who are really committed to uh, growing and deepening their spirituality throughout their life, that they will be able to draw on that resource um, at times of death and at times of hardship as well. One of the things that I think the church can do really well when it does, when it chooses to do this, is make a connection between life and death, whereas death is not seen as the opposite of life or the end of life, but seen as a sort of continuation of the life process of what it means to be human. Um, and that death is connected in some ways to to the life that we live now. I think we see that in the scripture and in Christian tradition. I think we see uh, when we look at Jesus again through that kind of lens, we can kind of appreciate his life more as somebody who just embraced the fact of death and chose to use that as an opportunity to live his life more fully, and then making that invitation to all of us as well. In Islamic belief, um, this is just the initial part of your life, a temporary and provisional part of life, and death is a point of transition. So in this life, your success is judged in two ways. 
how well you are connected with human beings in service and how well you are connected with God in worship. And we are reminded day and night. Uh, I go to bed uh, thinking of my death. I pray for myself, my wife, my uh, my children and my loved ones and uh, for this world. And I wake up by saying, thank God for giving me life. So every day there is a cycle and a prayer which goes before I go to sleep because it's form of death. And when I come come up next morning, thanking God that he has given me another time to live as a good neighbor and a person connected with God. Can you recite a little bit of the prayer before bed? Yes. Bismillah, uh, uh, in the name of God, I am dying and I live. Mm-hmm. And I wake up in the morning saying, Alhamdulillah, Thank you so much, God, for giving me life after you gave me death. I love that. In the tradition that I come from, we do the Song of Simeon at the end of the day, which is uh, a recitation of Simeon, who um, was an elder priest in the temple when Jesus was there. And he says, uh, now let your servant go in peace, for I have seen Uh, the Savior. And it's a reminder to us at the end of each day that we are ready for death. We say in the Jewish tradition, uh, in the evening service, hashkivenu, God lay us down to sleep, vahamidenu, and in the morning rise us up to life renewed. And Mm -hmm. so we pray that God will be with us as we sleep and that uh, when we wake up in the morning that we'll say the prayer, modani lefanecha, uh, we thank you, God, for returning my soul to me in the morning. And we also practice our death on an annual basis in the Jewish tradition. Uh, Yom Kippur, the holiest day of our year, is supposed to be a rehearsal for death. And the reason that we don't eat and that we deny ourselves any bodily pleasures is because on Yom Kippur, we are pretending that we are just soul that our body is no longer necessary, and that we are living an all-soul life, which will happen after we die. We'll just be all-soul without body. And we take that time to really be reflective on our life so that we rise up the next day after Yom Kippur and say, how do I really want to live my life? If today was really my last day, what would I want to do tomorrow? Jewish tradition also says, repent one day before you die. And the rabbis ask, well, what's one day before you die? And they say, exactly. You never know. So you better be prepared. Mm. So if we're really thinking about our life in that way continuously, um, then we prepare ourselves in a different kind of way uh, for death because we're trying to live our life now the way we really want to live it. So I want to go back to what Malik was saying about death as a point in time and the importance of the afterlife. How specific and important is the concept of the afterlife for both of your traditions? Is it a compelling point forward, or is it one of money? Uh, If you're a Muslim, among the universal faith which you believe in, you believe in one God, you believe on the God in the books, uh, all all the books and the prophets sent by God. At the same time, you believe uh, in hereafter. In Islam, there are three types of prayer. One is the five-time prayer ritual, and one is called dhikr, and one is called dua. Dua is sort of supplication, dhikr is remembrance. And uh, one of the most popular dua or the prayer what Muslims do many times a day if they are practicing is uh, it has three elements. O Lord, give us the best of this world. Hmm. 
and O oh Lord, give us the best of everlasting life and save us from the hellfire. This is a constant prayer normally repeated in every uh, time you're praying. And God in the Quran criticizes all people because he's the God. <laughs> he created everyone. So he has critical reflection on people of the past. And one of the point there is a criticism is that they believe in just in this life. They don't believe in everlasting life. And when this prayer is taught to Muslim in the Quran, it also taught there are some people who like to have the best of this world and we give it to them. And then there are people who believe best of this world and best of the everlasting life and we give it to them. Well, in the tradition, you know, Protestant Catholic traditions, there are there's any uh, wide spectrum of how some somebody might think about the afterlife in Hebrews. They say uh, that we will join the great cloud of witnesses, you know, the, the ancestors in the sky. In Thessalonians, it talks about those who sleep and that we will meet those who sleep again. In Revelations, it pushes it even further and says that the, the dead will rise uh, from their graves with Christ again in the afterlife. And so, I mean, that, that's what you get when you get an anthology of texts, an anthology of different cultures and traditions. And so there's not really one strand that you can say, like, we can own this and say every Christian believes this. But there is something that, that is salient in Christian thought about the idea that that something survives after death, something of us survives after death, and that and that, that fact also makes life significant. At the end of our life, we graduate into death. We graduate in that, uh, whether as the martyrs or as the ancestors, we become this sort of sacred, uh, we, we have this sacred opportunity to look over humanity that is now living. And who it is that's there with you. Up Varies. to a lot of variations. Yeah, no, that, that, right. That's his. <laughs> and one hopes that one is, is in the graduation You just kind of hope you're there. Um <laughs> But it's so varied. It's so varied uh, throughout history and throughout the biblical texts themselves. It's so different in terms of how they view the afterlife. Judaism is also all over the map when it comes to what will happen after we die. The early rabbis had this concept of what they called Yeshiva Shalmala, which was the great academy on high, because they loved studying, and so they thought when they die, they were just going to get to study all the time without having to do anything else. And so we have in our tradition projections of what we see as the good life, and that's how somehow we will live. But um, I think one thing that we can agree on throughout Jewish tradition, even though there's a wide variety of beliefs, is that the soul still lives even after the body is returned to the earth, as we say, from dust we came, from dust shall we return, and then the soul can be free to return to God. We say at the moment of death uh, the words believing in one God, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the eternal is our God, the eternal is one. We say this in the morning, we say it in the evening, we say it upon when we die, and this is the statement that says we believe that there is a wholeness in the universe and that we are part of that and that God is what unifies and holds us um, there. And so I think that that's really, really an important element for us is feeling like that we're part of that wholeness that we call God. I thought that asking about the afterlife was going to be much more of a lightning rod and point of conflict than it was. I have been educated. Let's take a short break.
We at the Holy of Holy podcast are new souls in this space. And we need your help to shape future shows. If you go to our website, holyholypodcast.com, there's a short survey to give us feedback and guidance going forward, including input on topics and guests for future shows. Please take the survey and be part of our future. I'm Kat Benakis, and this is the Holy Holy Podcast, the show about the wisdom of faith traditions in leading a good life. I'm joined today by Reverend Julian Chazier, Rabbi Andrea London, and Imam Malik Muhajid. Today we're looking at good death, which seems to come down to one question. Are you at peace? One of the other things that Dr. Emanuel talked about was how it's frightening to approach death because for each of us, it's our first time. Is it reasonable to be afraid of death? And and what are the things in our traditions um, that affirm and or help us in being afraid? I think it's so human to be afraid. You like to enjoy life. You like to live it to its fullest. And in our tradition, it is, um, you know, you live uh, thoroughly, you live this worldly, but you are also thinking of the other day, which dictates uh, your behavior. You have a choice to make, a good choice and a bad choice. And you think good choice is good for this life and good choice is good for the year after. But uh, if you're not afraid of uh, losing your life, you will not do things which you do, like avoiding head-on traffic or something of this nature. So all of us, are, I think, are afraid of death. Uh, and I think a person who says, I'm not afraid of ending the life may be very exceptional people, and I don't know whether they're saying the truth or not. In the Talmud, which is a collection of books of uh, Jewish law compiled in the 5th and 6th century but have teachings over many hundreds of years, there is this teaching I'd like to bring. Rabbi Nachman appeared to Rava in a dream. Rava said to him, Was death painful? Rabbi Nachman replied, It was like a hair being drawn from milk. But if the Holy One were to say to me, Go to that world and be as you were before, I would not want that. Fear of death is so great. So it's a powerful story that even though he's able to come back and tell his disciple it wasn't terrible, the anticipation was. And I think there is a real honesty around that, as Malik said, that these are the people who are the greatest sages of the time, and they are afraid, and that we are afraid of the unknown. There's also a concept within Judaism that think about a child in utero, and what it must feel like for them. They don't know what's going to happen on the other side. And that this world is like we're in the, the, the uterus of the present life and that we'll be born to something after and we have no idea. And think about that's exactly what a baby does, that a baby doesn't know what's going to be coming next. Of course, we think this is a joyful moment that's happening because we know what's going to happen on the other side. But for that baby, there's no knowing that. Christianity takes such an effort to say, do not worry. And, and, and at times in the text, even removing the parable and metaphor and just saying, do not worry. 
Does God not care for the lilies of the field and the sparrows? Will not you be taken care of as well? Or Jesus says, I am going to a place you don't know. Or it says, where I'm going, my father's house has many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you. So it's this way of faith helping to deal with this unknown and say, no, relax. You're taken care of. You are taken care of. All you have to do is live well, focus on living well. And that's a way of kind of dealing with whether in in death or anything else with this existential discomfort with the unknown. And I think that that's, those are, those are moments where faith really rises to the challenge. That's where Islam, Judaism, Christianity really have some, some salient answers and some powerful answers to the condition that we experience all the time of just being worried about like what happens next? What, what happens next that I can't control? And I think also within Christianity, this is one of those moments when the concept of the Trinity works really well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we we can have different quibbles about how do you get three and one and blah sure. blah blah. But but there's this concept of uh, God, the Creator, has created, and there's a sense of the cosmos and the continuity. Uh, God, the Redeemer, and the Son has gone through, has experienced death, and is going to create a place. And then we get the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, who does not leave us orphaned, who walks beside us and is the, the remnant that is with us. And I think that it's really great math that you have all of those different ways in which we're surrounded, acknowledging our absolute anxiety around this. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that death can bring out is a lot of family strife. We would we would like for deaths to be good and deaths to be peaceful. Uh, but this is also a moment when siblings and children and all different things get into all different uh, degrees of naughtiness. As people who deal with families and people in crisis, uh, what tools do we have? What's that like? Why does it bring this out? I mean, these these are some of the really complicated, yucky parts of what can happen in bad death. All the funerals and deaths I have been part of in one way or the other, I have seen it brings people closer uh, to each other and brings people closer to God. Because when funeral prayer is recited, it's not only for the dead, it's also for the living. At its best, it's understood, I think, as as being for the dead and the living. But I've seen some ugly stuff. And, and sometimes it's because we're trying to make decisions for people who can't decide for themselves now. And there's just discord in how those decisions should be made. But in most cases, what I experienced, the discord and the real tension is, is as people trying to mourn, people trying to find the space to mourn and not really knowing how to do that because whatever their tradition or church really hasn't had a lot of time to talk about death and life or the family really doesn't have a really mature worldview or understanding around death they they just kind of see it as a as a disruption and as the worst thing ever you know and it is a disruption but but in the midst of that change all change involves loss we know that and that in the midst of that loss mourning is going to happen and some people are going to mourn in different ways. I mean, they're going to they're going to yell, they're going to isolate themselves, go off in the corner, they're going to uh, clean up more, they're going to find ways to keep themselves busy. Like we all have different ways. And then that tension comes when when I don't know how you're mourning. Like I don't know what process you're going through. I'm going and I think you should go through it this way. 
and you should miss him like this. That's how you're supposed to miss him. Uh, or, or she should, should be honored in this way. You know, and it's really just a lot of messiness because there's just no time to communicate. And that's really where I think faith and our, our traditions have an opportunity to orient people so that they don't feel so lost, so at sea and windswept at the moment of death. But we can all gather around particular traditions and prayers and things that can center us again. And then we're, we're going to go off and, and be doing our own thing and mourning in our own ways, but that we can come say this prayer. We can come do this funeral. We can do this memorial. This burial is going to try to bring us together and, and try to remind us in the midst of the tension of what this is really about. That's a question I ask a lot when I'm with a family that's quarreling and stuff. I say, why are we really here? Why are we really here? And then when those answers come out about we want to remember a person, we just want to love a person, we're afraid for ourselves, we're, you know, then there are real opportunities for faith to do even more work. I have been involved in many messy and difficult deaths with families. And we've talked a little bit about what happens after someone dies, but before somebody dies also, when we live in a world in which modern medicine can prolong people's lives and we have to make very difficult decisions about when to stop treating or when to unplug machines, these are very difficult and painful. And families are often in disagreement about what to do. I uh, remember not too long ago a family where the father was in hospice and uh, the daughter wanted to make sure that there was a lot of morphine given so that the father would be comfortable. And the son said, you're killing him. You can't give him so much morphine. He's so out of it. And um, I want to still be able to be in conversation with him and was belligerent and angry and yelling at his sister. And this is just one case of many where it's very challenging. This is where I think actually religious leaders can be powerful and important to bring in somebody from the outside who can help to facilitate those difficult conversations. Because if you haven't had the conversation with your loved one before they're at that stage, people are often at sea and there aren't any um, buoys mooring us in any way or directing us in any way. And I think that this is one of the issues in which our traditions are often um, really struggling to figure out how to, how to handle things. Well, and in the case of that family, there had been clearly many conversations that happened before that. The person's already in hospice. They're not doing intervention and extreme measures. The, the person isn't on a respirator. So all of sort of the textbook conversations of what is good planning, they've done that. And yet you're at this final moment of a little more morphine, a little less morphine, that that is where the heartbreak and the disruption happens. And and in some ways, your role as a religious leader is just facilitating the conversation. Right. There's, there's not a specific Talmudic answer in that case at all. No, and I think those are often the hard points when there's not a clear answer, when I'm not just going to open up the book and say, this is what you do now, but just to be able to air people's feelings and to be heard and to realize also the process somebody's dying and in the process of mourning that we don't do it all the same. And I think we all live in a society in which everybody wants to be nice and considerate and thoughtful. And death and dying is messy and hard and okay. 
So let's just own it. Let's just say it what it is and let's just hold that as opposed to, you know, chastising somebody or telling somebody they should be doing something different. It is appropriate for us and for religious leadership to be in that that space and not always talking. I think one of the issues and some of the reasons why sometimes religious leadership is rejected wholesale, but also in moments of death and leading up to death is because it's like we we either think we should have the answers or others in the room think we're supposed to have the answers. But if we can come in in a more responsible and a more mutual way and say, I'm here to listen, I'm here to, I'm here to, to offer up some things that we might not be thinking about right now, I'm here to ask a lot of questions, I'm here to do those things, then we're really living into our potential in that room in the moment. Then there are other times when we come in and say like, hey, we got to pray right now. We got to, you know, you shouldn't be crying. You should feel better. There with God now. Like that's when it gets a little bit more uh, irresponsible, even reckless, I would say. I'll just go there and just say that that is abusive to those families and to traditions that are thousands of years old that have tried to treat humans better in these moments. I agree. The most important thing that we're offering somebody at death is presence, being there. Jewish tradition teaches us that when you go to a house of mourning, go to the Shiva house after someone has died and you come to pay your respects, that you are not supposed to speak until the mourner speaks to you. Mm. Silence. It reminds us that there is nothing that we can say or do that is appropriate or right or will make somebody feel comfortable. But we need to be there and that our being there is what's important. And this is what God offers us too. God offers us presence without judgment and love. And when I meet with families before a funeral, it's important to create the space where they can share their love for the person who has died and to share those stories. And that's what I do is I hold the container. And the number of times after I've met with a family where a family has said to me, Thank you so much for coming, Rabbi. We feel like we've had a chance to get to know you better. And I think to myself, I think that I've said 10 words in the last hour and a half. But it reminds us again, how do we know people? We don't know people just by what they say, but what they allow us to say and how they invite us. And I'm saying, you can talk for as long as you like. And when you take a break to think about the next thing to say, I'm going to sit here and wait and not interrupt you. This is what people want to be able to do, and they want to share those stories, and we give them space. Being present at someone's funeral is a right of a Muslim, as we are taught. Not participating is a sin. If your neighbor dies and um, uh, you don't show up, it's considered a sin. So a whole lot of people show up. And one of the signs that something has happened there is almost everybody is silent. Uh, the silence, if you're walking in a street in a place you saw several people gathered and they're silent, it's, it is a sure sign that somebody has passed away that place. The only thing they will do is read Quran or talk and whisper. So when you say silence, I mean, I remember many funerals I have gone and all I have done is sat there in silence or praying to myself. So sometimes silence is the loudest thing you can do in sympathy of someone.
hate to break this silence, but we must end the show. We may not be any closer to having a good death than we were at the beginning, but it's not for lack of effort on the part of our contributors. Linda Emanuel, Chris Benakis, Julian DeChazier, Andrea London, and Malik Mujahid. Thanks to Mackie Alston, Katie Clopson, David Shulman, Sarah Geis, David Dalt, and the folks at the Chicago Sunday Evening Club for their help in design and production. Seed funding for the Holy Holy Podcast was provided by the Louisville Institute, supporting those who lead and study American religious institutions. For information about our contributors and the ability to shape future shows, visit our website, holyholypodcast.com. Until next time, peace be with you.